Starting to feel the Christmas season over here as I broadcast from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, my hometown, in the room where I grew up, visiting my parents after far too long, like many of you, after this crazy couple of years here. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. It's been quite a week. I mean, on Monday I was in London for the Canadian Mining Symposium. Tuesday we did the Mining Legends Speaker Series. Then I went to Toronto to visit my brother for a few days, and here I am in Saskatoon visiting the parents after far, far too long. So it's feeling a little bit like Christmas over here. So looking at the big picture here, I mean, we have this oil price cap. The oil price itself, if we just use that as some kind of indicator, looks kind of, uh, shall we say, neutral. West Texas at $74.01. Brent crude at $79.09. The spread has come down a little bit, interestingly. And the oil price cap, I mean, there's a story in the FT that I was reading. So the cap is at $60, and apparently Russian crude trades below $60. So I think that might be part of the reason we haven't seen a response yet from the Russians, at least as far as I could search, I, I didn't see anything. Sounds like they are going to have a response, but I don't see anything concrete yet. So kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, aren't we, on that whole plan? So let's see. I mean, I, again, like there is a saying in the gold sector, which is the person that has the gold makes the rules. And what we're seeing here is that the people that don't have the gold or metaphorically speaking, in other words, who don't have the oil, are trying to make the rules. So this expression is being put to the test. And so it's going to be very interesting to watch here. I mean, get out your popcorn and do a search on oil and Russia and price cap. And I think we're going to see some pretty interesting stuff in the coming weeks. Other than that, I mean, I keep looking at this Jetty Resources situation. And do you remember them from, I think it was last week, that we're telling you the story of this company that had found a way to extract low-grade copper from rocks by utilizing bacteria, from what I understand. So they just put bacteria in this solution with the rocks, and all that's left behind is the copper. So this is potentially, to use a cliche, a game-changer here. And you are seeing BMW, we just have a story that came out here on mining.com, BMW is investing in Jetty Resources. BMW invests in low-carbon copper firm Jetty, referring to Jetty Resources. And other investors include, I mean, we're getting some pretty serious social proof here. Other investors include Freeport McMorrin, BHP, and BlackRock. So if you get those guys doing their due diligence and deciding we need to invest in this, it sounded pretty serious and it's pretty interesting, isn't it? It just goes to show that, you know, copper looked like the most obvious, you know, investment, frankly, that you could make. There's not going to be enough copper is the refrain we heard over and over. And if you don't have enough, you don't have enough. Sure enough, a story comes up with a way to extract copper and a lot of it much more easily. So fascinating stuff over there. Coming up in this program, we have Sean Boyd, executive chair of the board at Agnico Eagle Mines. And he did an interview with Northern Miner Group President Anthony Vaccaro at last Monday's, it feels like two weeks ago, but it was only a few days ago, at last week's Canadian Mining Symposium. And it's a fascinating interview, a window into Sean Boyd's 
mind and really into his company philosophy. I mean, they're pretty well known for the slow and steady approach. However, in recent years, they have done a lot of M&A. And just in the last two or three years, they have really amped it up. And it's interesting. So Anthony asked Sean about, you know, what changed because they're kind of famously slow and steady. So you get insight into Sean's answer on that, which is quite interesting, mostly just opportunities presenting themselves. And as well, he talks about the company culture, which is just profoundly important. Like one of the most interesting things I thought about this interview was, you know, Sean was saying how one of the greatest advantages Ignico Eagle had was really the collegial nature of the company. In a sense, the employees trusted the management. And even in the executive, the families would hang out together. So he was saying how he didn't have to deal with all this inner fighting, this inner competition, this one-upmanship, and how that was a massive advantage against his competitors. Pretty interesting stuff. So anyways, a great interview from the Canadian Mining Symposium last week with Agnico Ekel, Executive Chair, Sean Boyd, former CEO. So a wonderful episode in store for you with some pretty head-turning stories. So I look forward to presenting those to you, my friend. Thank you again for joining me as we enter the holiday season of quite a year. So welcome back. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer and on Instagram at The Northern Miner, and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have an article from Bloomberg News via mining.com. U.S. EU weigh climate-based tariffs on Chinese steel and aluminum. So they're not quite finished just with the Russian oil price cap. Now they're trying climate-based tariffs on Chinese steel and aluminum. This all seems to me, from my little perch here in Saskatoon, it all seems to be moving quite fast, and there could be quite a few unintended consequences. Let's just take a closer look here. The U.S. and European Union are weighing new tariffs on Chinese steel and aluminum as part of a bid to fight carbon emissions and global overcapacity according to people familiar with the matter. The move would mark a novel approach as the U.S. and E.U. would seek to use tariffs, usually employed in trade disputes, to further their climate agenda. U.S. aluminum and steel producers climbed and extended trading. The idea, generated within Joe Biden's administration, is still in an initial phase and hasn't been formally proposed, according to the people who asked not to be identified, as the discussions aren't public. An agreement with the E.U., including specifics on how to identify thresholds for applying tariffs isn't likely until late next year at the earliest, one of the people said, adding that even the timeline was optimistic. So that is quite a ways away. Late next year at the earliest, and that would be optimistic. So very early in this whole idea. The new framework, which builds on a related US-EU agreement last year, is mainly aimed at China, the world's biggest carbon emitter and producer of steel and aluminum, as well as other large polluting nations, according to the people. The tariff plan would likely deepen divisions between Beijing and Washington, particularly at a time when the two countries have committed to working together to fight climate change. But talks between the U.S. and EU to jointly address the climate crisis are a positive sign for a relationship that's again suffering trade irritants, including Biden's signature climate law that European countries say discriminates against their industries. You know, I thought when Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan that Beijing said that they were going to cut off all collaboration 
on climate. So this is not mentioned here. And just scrolling down a little bit here, EU officials raised several questions when they met in Prague in late October, including regarding the legality and compatibility with World Trade Organization rules, as well as with the bloc's internal carbon pricing mechanism, people familiar with the talks said. You know, and this brings up a whole other issue. I mean, there's also, you know, the Europeans who are, to call them annoyed would be an understatement with this Inflation Reduction Act that basically has a Buy American clause in the act which would incentivize car makers to make cars in the U.S. and give them priority, from what I understand, in the marketplace. You know, it's kind of back to that idea, you can find it in the Peloponnesian War, that the person who's strongest makes the rules. And this whole idea that, you know, I mean, you always hear the West talk about a rules-based system, but it's rules-based as long as it's, you know, favoring the West. But you see here, I mean, this is just another example. Does this violate WTO rules? Does the Inflation Reduction Act violate WTO rules? Because if they do, then what are they doing? It seems like you can't, you know, go out there and say we're promoting a rules-based order and then, you know, violate the WTO whenever it's convenient for you, whenever it's expedient for you. Isn't that true? I mean, leave a comment below if you disagree. So anyways, just interesting, you know, so if the oil price cap wasn't enough for you, don't worry, they're after Chinese steel and aluminum next. So, I mean, you cut out Russia and China out of the metals equation, you know, we're going to need some mines out here, that's for sure. Continuing on, Biden's climate bill is a put option on automakers' big EV bets. This is Reuters via mining.com. Investors often use a term to describe the role of the Federal Reserve plays as a backstop when markets crash. The Fed put refers to the central bank being willing to intervene and offer a form of insurance that downside risk is covered. Considering what General Motors is saying about its electric vehicles, the company seems to view the Inflation Reduction Act that President Joe Biden signed into law in August as a sort of put that protects the big investments it's making in battery and EV production. Well before the Inflation Reduction Act passed, GM vowed to have the capacity in place to build 1 million EVs in North America by mid-decade. And we have a quote from GM CEO Mary Barra, who told Bloomberg Television, quote, this was all in place before the incentive package came as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. To really get all companies and consumers to move forward with EVs, this is very important. We think it will be helpful and allow us to continue to invest in the U.S. So you know what this reminds me of? is remember Alcoa when they're trying to remove Russian aluminum from the LME and that never ended up going through. But again, it's back to this, whatever is expedient is basically trumping the rules here. And, you know, and to me, it's a little hypocritical, frankly, that people go out there and they talk about their ESG principles and then they completely ignore rules like the WTO. Like, isn't that social and governance? Like, or am I misunderstanding the point? Again, it's back to this idea, like, this is when the Chinese say we're talking outside of both sides of our mouth here. On one hand, we're saying a rules-based order, but once those rules are inconvenient for us, we're more than happy to throw them out the window to whatever's expedient. Again, it brings you back to the Peloponnesian War. 
major theme there. And listen to, like, here's some numbers for you. Barra's comments follow an investor day GM held last month in which management said U.S. tax credits of $3,750 or $7,500 per EV, depending on factors, including where battery materials are sourced, will help bring profit margins on EVs in line with those of its gasoline-powered vehicles. Ford CEO Jim Farley has similarly praised the IRA, Inflation Reduction Act, saying during his last earnings call that the company expects $7 billion worth of tax credits towards battery production by 2026. Think about that. $7 billion worth of tax credits. No wonder Europe is furious right now. And where Europe is saying, hey, what about the WTO? This is not legit, our so-called ally. So... Back to this, just whatever is expedient, which, and this is the problem. You say, well, that's just the world. To me, I mean, bringing it back almost to Sean Boyd and Agnico Eagle, this is a short-term strategy to do whatever is expedient in the short run. Isn't that the problem? I mean, if you just say, oh, it doesn't matter and there's no consequences, then maybe in one way or another you say, well, the ends justify the means. But you could argue strategically by breaking these rules and by favoring oneself over other countries, even including our allies, for expediency in the short run seems to undermine these relationships in the long term, don't they? You know, we were talking, Sean Boyd is going to talk about trust. Does this build trust between Europe and the United States? Some questions for you this holiday season, my friends. And we're back to this idea. I mean, this is all for the sake of putting 17 million more cars on the road each year, I guess. Volkswagen kicks off search for battery cell plant sites in Canada. It's by Cecile Jamasmi, uh, northernminer.com. Volkswagen has begun searching for a site in Canada to build its first battery cell factory in North America as part of the German carmaker's planned expansion of its electric vehicle battery business outside Europe. Canadian Industry Minister François-Philippe Champagne signed the document, described as an addendum to a memorandum of understanding inked with VW in August this year during his visit to Germany. The search will be headed by Volkswagen's battery unit, known as PowerCo, and will take into account the availability of enough sources of renewable energy to power the plant. Ontario and Quebec, Canada's two largest provinces, already have vast sources of clean power generation, which includes hydroelectric capacity. The agreement also includes a pledge by PowerCo and Umicor to explore a strategic supply agreement on cathode material for North America. Belgium's materials technology and recycling company announced in July a $1.5 billion cathode and precursor materials manufacturing plant in Ontario with operations planned in 2025. Automakers from VW to General Motors are exploring different business models as they race to electrify their lineups and catch Tesla, the world's top seller of electric vehicles. Okay, so that is our backdrop. Then we turn to this story on Indonesia, who is trying to make a OPEC-type cartel on the nickel market. Once you go down this road of expediency, how do we criticize then Indonesia? When they want to go down the road of expediency, they say, you're doing it, rich countries, richer than us. We're poorer than you. Why shouldn't we do it? So Indonesian President Joko Widodo points to Taiwan, South Korea as models in rebuke of West. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Indonesian President Joko Widodo said his nation won't allow a purely open economic model that he blamed for undercutting Latin American growth prospects for decades, saying Taiwan and South Korea show the advantage of making the world dependent on them. Speaking to a business forum in Jakarta on Friday, Widodo said the most industrialized economies in Asia found an alternative way to achieve high-income status 
that he wants in Indonesia to follow. He cited Taiwan's success in developing its semiconductor chip industry and South Korea's emphasis on digital hardware. Quote, they are focused, strategic, and competitive. This is the system we need to keep emulating. And quote, the president, popularly known as Jokowi, said the first lesson he wants Indonesia to apply from that experience, quote, making other countries reliant on us, end quote. The president's remarks come as Indonesia, the world's biggest producer of nickel and palm oil, is pushing hard for commodities industries to evolve in order to move up the value chain and reduce the economy's reliance on exports of raw materials. Quote, we also have products that many countries need, such as nickel, copper, bauxite, and tin. So it's an interesting comparison. He says that Latin America chose the wrong path, saying that, quote, after more than 50, 60, 70 years, their countries were always developing instead of reaching developed status. Instead, South Korea and Taiwan rose into the higher income ranks within a relatively short time. I mean, it's hard to disagree with them, isn't it? I mean, the Middle East makes cartels. And listen to this. Listen to the distrust here. Quote, if we follow the footstep of the Western countries, we will always be left behind. We will never catch up. We will keep our economy open, but once again, we need to be able to design it in such a way that other countries are reliant on us. End quote. So you can see where all this is leading. And finally, Glencore pays $180 million to Congo after admitting corruption. It's also by Cecilia Jamasmi, northernminer.com. Miner and commodities giant Glencore said on Monday it will pay the government of the Democratic Republic of Congo $180 million to settle all alleged corruption claims in the country between 2007 and 2018. And of course, if you read Javier Blas's great book, The World for Sale, you'll learn all about the Glencore story. It's fascinating. And yeah, there was all sorts of shady dealings in the history of that company. The Swiss firm said the latest deals covers all activities that have been the subject of probes by the DRC's National Financial Intelligence Unit and Ministry of Justice and the United States Department of Justice over the 11-year period. This includes the company's payment of $27.5 million in bribes to the Central African country between 2010 and 2013. And we have a quote from Chairman Kalidas Madavedpedi, and he says, quote, Glencore is a long-standing investor in the DRC and is pleased to have reached this agreement to address the consequences of its past conduct. So those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond, which is yielding 3.559%, and that is 0.17% lower than last week, so it continues to drop. Let's just take a look at gilts here quickly. UK 10-year bond, which was, you know, very dramatic not that long ago. Let's just look. 3.086%, so that also continues to drop. So you got to like that if you're the government of UK or the US. Turning to our metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on December 6th, gold is trading at $1,776.90 per ounce. That is $26 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $22.42 per ounce. That is $1.16 higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,001.09 per ounce. That is a dollar higher than last week. 
and palladium is trading at $1,865.37 per ounce. That is $16 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.78 per pound. That is $0.17 cents higher than last week. Aluminum is trading at $1.11 per pound. That is $0.06 cents higher than last week. And lead is trading at $0.98 cents per pound. That is $0.02 cents higher than last week. Nickel is trading at $12.31 per pound. That is $0.86 cents higher than last week. And tin is trading at $10.66 per pound. That is $0.48 cents higher than last week. And cobalt is trading a penny higher at $23.25 per pound. And zinc is trading $0.07 cents higher at $1.39 per pound. So looking at our metal prices, I would say risk on in the last week here, really picking up on the week before. So a nice little rally here in the last couple of weeks. So really uh, the wind in the sails of the metals all across the board. And I guess we'd have to look at the US dollar taking a rest after its massive climb this year as the main culprit here. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Sean Boyd, executive chair of the board for Igneco Eagle Mines, and he is interviewed by Northern Miner Group President Anthony Vaccaro, and they discuss strategy, M&A, and employee trust, which Sean Boyd called a major advantage against his competition. And I mean, the real takeaway of this conversation for me was just how important values are to Agnico Eagle, whether it's, you know, a young Sean Boyd taking a jacket and some donuts to the guy on the street in Toronto in the cold. You really got the sense from this conversation that values do triumph in the end. And so it's a wonderful interview on that theme. Perfect as we enter this holiday season. It was recorded last week at the Canadian Mining Symposium in Canada House in London, England. I hope you enjoy it and I will see you on the other side. now to be joined by the executive chairman of what has become one of the world's largest, most important gold companies, Sean Boyd. Over his long career at Nico Eagle, he served as CEO for roughly 20 years before becoming the executive chairman. He has won many, many accolades, but of course, the two most important, Sean, he's the only person to win the Mining Person of the Year twice, the first time in 2007. It was yourself and your colleague, Eve Shirkus, and then in 2017, it was all of yours. It's been an astounding career, and it's been fun to watch this company grow in the way it has. Also, Agnico Eagle, I mentioned it earlier off the top, was also founded in Cobalt, as was the Northern Miner, so something kind of cool that our two companies share. So please join me, Sean, and we'll sit down for a, a good chat. It's, it's very fun for me when we get to sit down. It's been a couple of years since we last got to chat. But I always, uh, I always really enjoy it. I always love your history as well. I mean, you come from a very blue-collar family. Your father was a police officer and still mm -hmm. a lot of great values, those family values that I think you've carried through into the DNA of Nico Eagle. Talk to the crowd a little bit about your origin story and how that kind of fed into what you brought to the company. Sure. Great to be here and um, uh, great to see everybody out and uh, supporting the Canadian Mining Symposium that the Northern Miner puts on. So... I'm an accountant by trade. 
I see my uh, fellow accountants from Ernst & Young, used to be Clarkson Gordon where I worked, and uh, I started at Clarkson Gordon in 1981. And on day one, they sent me across the street to one of the office towers, and it was Naranda Mines. And I think I was there for nine months working on the audit. So I had that sort of mining experience, and it was, I could see at that point that that's something I wanted to do, uh, try to get into that industry. And then in 1983, we got a call that there was a new mining client coming on board, and it was Agnico Eagle. And I was the fortunate one that they tapped on the shoulder and said, you know, go over to that account. You're going to be the audit senior. You're going to meet the team. And I got to meet Paul Penna, who was essentially the founder of Agnico, which really instilled a lot of the values of the company that still hold today. So it was a, a great fit, a great place to sort of look forward and try to build a career because I was joining a place at that time which only had five people in the head office. But most of the people have been there for decades. I see Mervyn Roberts here has been on our board. He was running money here in London, and he was a shareholder back in the mid-'80s when I started at Agnico. So I know we're going to get to talk about a bit about the strategy, but a lot of that effective strategy is based on the consistency of the management, the board, how they work together, the employees, low turnover, multiple generations of employees working there. And that's, I think, been a big part to the success of being able to be patient, being able to be disciplined over time, and put the pieces together to ultimately build a bigger business, but a more successful business. Well, you're right. We are going to dive into that yep. a bit more because it is, Agnico is the opposite of the get rich quick story. Thing. Yeah. It truly is. I'm going to rhyme off a few numbers here. I like a few numbers. <laughs> for production for next year, all right, this is what you guys are looking at. LaRonde. 390,000 ounces. Now that Malartic's going to be all yours, 670,000 ounces. Goldex, 140. Detour, 730 ounces. This is annual, folks. 220,000 ounces from Mikasa, 390 from Meliadine, 370 from Meadowbank. That's just in Canada. Yeah. Canada alone next year, Agnico Eagle is projecting to produce almost 3 million ounces of gold, and the year after that will be over 3.1. And then when you take into consideration Kitala, Pinos Altas, Fosterville, of mm -hmm. course, you're going to be at about 3.8 million next year. You'll be by far the largest gold producer in Canada. Barrick and Newmont are not even close in Canada. And in the world, you'll be number three. Talk to us about this. I mean, we've talked over the years, and you've pointed out that sometimes it can be a flaw, not just in the mining industry, but in company builders in general, to pursue empire building mm -hmm. at all costs. Mm -hmm. You've done it slow and steady. You've intentionally not tried to be an empire builder, and yet you have an empire. How did it happen? Yeah, I, th I think we have a, a good business that happens to be a gold mining business that's happened to get bigger over time. And I, I think it comes back to this focus on patience, focus on being deliberate, focus on being disciplined. But that also comes with trust between board and management and employees, and you can really build on that. And I think what we've had is consistency. When you look at... Paul Penna was the CEO for about 30 years. We had uh, a gentleman for two years uh, after Paul passed away, and then I was CEO for 24 years. And so I think it's the consistency of the approach, but you still have to have a strategy that works. It has to be effective. It has to be well-managed to the skills of the company to actually make it work. And we've been fortunate. But I, I think what it's not that we needed discipline to be sort of forced upon us. We're, we're generally, being accountants, tend to be patient. Uh, tend to be disciplined, but we're all always mindful of this concept of risk 
and perception of risk because we saw ourselves in a business where we're producing this yellow shiny brick and that yellow shiny brick really just has price risk. And so investors are looking for exposure to gold. And so our job running gold mining companies is to not move too far away along the risk spectrum from that yellow shiny bar. And so that's why we've tended to focus on things like political risk. You know, don't take on a lot of political risk. Uh, keep the business manageable so you're not taking on excessive execution risk. Take our lead from our technical people when we look at adding components to the business. And what we're asking them to do is, is make a call on geology. Follow geology. But don't go everywhere to follow the geology. Now, part of that is what that drives is not only does it drive our ability to execute and deliver on our promises, which is important from an investor uh, perspective, but we've been blessed with, for, for years, this uh, valuation advantage, this multiple advantage. And we think it's largely because of the consistency of approach. So there's a familiarity, there's a trust. It's also because we've been able to deliver, because we've kept the business manageable, but we've also kept that risk profile down. And so investors, when they feel comfortable, because it's a complex world in terms of where do you put your money, if you can build that trust, keep the business simple, execute over time, it's not easy to do. Everybody knows this is a really tough business, so you try to improve your odds along the way. But when it comes time to take risks on M&A, uh, which we've done, and we've done a fair bit in, over the last two years, we're comfortable doing it because we're able to make an assessment of the upside of the opportunity. We're able to bring a lot of collective experience together, people that have worked together for a long time. We have a broad range of skills. As you know, we build our own minds, and that's what we've tried to do. So there was no need to be in a hurry, and we never set out. And this is the other thing that we would always notice is in the past, companies that are long gone would always get up at these conferences and put up the bar charts and, you know, down five or six years, they'd put up a number. And they'd say, you know, we're going to build a business to get to here. And there was always 30 to 40% of the annual output they didn't have yet. They were saying, yeah, but we're going to get there. That's a mistake because you're going to run and chase or try to do something to fill in that gap. We never had any of those targets. It was really to focus on keeping that business manageable. So go back to late 90s. Our revenue was $50 million. We had $3 million in EBITDA. We had no cash. We were losing money. What did we have? Pretty good deposit at Laurent. Not easy, you know, going deep, multiple metals. But we had a great culture and a great team. And we were able to sort of say, okay, how do we use that and give ourselves exposure to other quality deposits? So we started to expand in the region. Goldex, Lapa, Mexico, Finland but do it in small bites, small increments, where we could take that Quebec-based team, use all the skill sets. We call it La Ronde University because we had that broad range of skills where we'd take those individuals and move them into those other deposits. And then since then, we've added assets to really build the base. So Such a key part of the Agnico story because La Ronde was such a company builder, but it was so technically challenging. And I'm going to connect that to my next question. I mean, when you lay it out the way you do, it seems like, yes, of course. Why would anyone take on that extra risk? 
I remember when I came into the industry as a reporter in 2005, the story was about, you actually, companies with North American assets almost were discounted in the market, and they were getting premiums if they were in more risky areas. And the story was, North America, everything's been picked over. You can't get the replacement ounces. You have to go far-flung places. You weren't buying into that at the time. No. What do you chalk that up to? Was it that you knew that your biggest advantage was a technical advantage, and therefore you could find things in known jurisdictions that no one else could yeah, find? Yeah, it was a skill set advantage, but it was a trust that we had in each other. When I look at that key team that came from Laurent, those senior managers that we moved ultimately to Toronto as we built out the company, they hung out together on weekends. Their wives were best friends. So when we knew when we were considering how to allocate capital, particularly on M&A, you know, as CEO, I was blessed. I didn't have to sort of try to handicap, why is he telling me this? Because he wants to get one up on this guy. We never had to deal with any of that stuff. And so I think that was a huge and massive advantage for us. And so we just could afford to be patient. We saw the opportunities. But think about that region now. And think about... Anthony, what you just went through, you just listed a bunch of mines. Think about the core of that business now as we sort of move through the next few months and roll in the other half of Malartic. Detour. We have concepts where we can see Detour producing over a million ounces a year. So we took an asset that was moved along. Kirkland did a good job there. We bring a lot of Ignico's in-house technical expertise to sort of look at it a little bit differently. And we're sitting up there and we can see that a million ounces of annual production. We moved down to Kirkland Lake. Macassa, not an easy mine. We have the Upper Beaver Project, the AK deposit right on the, the old boundary between Kirkland Lake and, and the Ignico property. We're going to improve that. Start heading east into Quebec, Val d'Or. Now, as we move forward, 100% uh, of Malartic. So you think about those. Malartic's going to continue to grow with that underground. And think about those two anchors. Think about the fact that we've announced two-kilometer step-out holes at Detour outside of the known mineralization. Think about Malartic, where we've got a kilometer to a kilometer and a half in the sediments, step-outs, outside of the East Goldie, which is the core of the underground. Think about that production base. It's bigger than Barrick's interest in the Nevada joint venture, but doesn't get the press because it's Canada. It's not Nevada, but it's bigger than Barrick's interest in the Nevada joint venture. Think about this. Who was there in our region? Barrick used to be there. They left. Placer Dome used to be there. They left. Tech used to be there. They left. We didn't stay because it's our home. We were comfortable there, and we were basically trying to build a company not just around the geology that we had at Laurent and Goldex of Lapa, but more importantly around the skill set that we were forced to develop in-house to take advantage of those opportunities. That was what we were focused on doing. Well, it's playing out beautifully right now. It truly is. Talk us through the M&A. It's a big thing. It seems, I mean, there were other deals before. I mean, we first met when you guys acquired Kitala and we went out to Finland. Mm -hmm. You had the Pinos Altos, I think was probably the next big one yep. after that, if memory yep. serves correctly. But then it's really accelerated since TMAC. So we'll go TMAC, Kirkland, and now the Yamana. Maybe take us through, was there a shift in corporate strategy about, okay, we're going M&A, and if so, why? And what was, uh, what was feeding Not it? Not really a shift. It was just sometimes these things happen in bunches. A lot of times you can't plan this. You have to wait for the opportunity. We certainly had looked at Hope Bay, but we were looking at Hope Bay sort of early 2020. We were still uh, ramping up our operations in Nunavut. We were struggling a bit. 
in the first quarter of 2020, and then opportunity presented itself to take a look at Hope Bay, which we did, and then we run into COVID. So we said, you know what, we're just not going to take that one on. And then fortunate for us, the Canadian government decided that, um, you know, that asset was not going to transact to the buyer that had a shareholder-approved deal to do that. And that became known in uh, late December, and we were able to announce a deal within two weeks because we had cooperation from uh, Shandong that basically said, looks like we're stuck, and they were very cooperative to make sure that this thing didn't drag on, that it ended up with a, with a company like Igneco so we could move that one forward. So that one makes sense. Massive coverage, major greenstone belt in a part of the world that we know pretty well and have a demonstrated ability to do business. And we go in the traditional mode of Igneco, great geology, let's just drill it. And so it was producing, you know, we kept it going. We said, you know what, let's just shut the production down. Let's just get the drills turning. Let's understand what we own. We believe it's bigger than seven plus million ounces. Let's grow it and then let's figure out, you know, how we put that and turn it into a meaningful cash flow generator over time. So that's what we've done. The next one on the list was Kirkland Lake. Um, clearly the prize was Detour. And again, it was more just timing. You know, you look at the circular that was put out. There were other parties that were interested. Again, we didn't pay a premium for that one. So we understood the geology, we understood what we were getting, we understood an ability to improve things in Kirkland Lake, we saw some upside at Detour, Fosterville was running high grade, but again, that fit this sort of regional concept around consolidation. And I think where we look at consolidation is that consolidation will be deemed a success for the industry if the right assets end up in the right hands, essentially. And it's hard to make a case now where you're going to go out and announce a deal and all you can say for making that deal is that it's going to make us bigger. There has to be a reason. In the case of Kirkland Lake, significant synergies. And we can see those synergies, you know, they're easy at the corporate level because you take two corporate offices and you put them together and you don't need, you know, double of everything, you know, because you're basically only adding one new country. The other two assets are in Ontario. And so you can manage those. And and we've already surpassed our synergies on the corporate side. Some of the operating synergies are the consolidation of the Kirkland Lake Camp, where we're bringing a deposit, which was not mineable on its own with Igneco, but now mineable with Macasa. So, you know, there was a lot of industrial logic there. So the market got that one. San Nicholas with tech. Uh, so again, people say copper, or wait a minute. Well, Igneco's got a long history of zinc and copper at Laurent. We've got a long history of, we know VMS deposits, that's Laurent. Laurent will mine out and likely at the end of the day be the largest gold-bearing VMS deposit in the history of the world, surpassing the famous Horn mine, you know, based on gold production. So we have that experience. San Nicolas is a VMS. And I think what Tech saw is Tech saw a, a, a company that had a strong ability to do business in Mexico, a company that's comfortable with Mexico. We have you know, a great work, for, that's our number one asset in Mexico is the people and the team. So that one was a natural, right partner, right structure, no, no upfront money. We spend it and earn in, in Mexico, a place we know. Copper, again, we know. VMS, we know. And the last one with Yamana, that makes total sense. It's basically the consolidation of Canadian Malartic, essentially. And uh, Yamana was a fabulous partner. And so as we looked at it, we said, 
the next stage for value creation there is the underground. Well, that's our history for decades in the Abitibi region of Quebec. That's where we have the skill set. We would be more comfortable if we had 100% of that asset for the simple reason, even recently, as an example, we had cause to add some in-house development miners to the underground project in place of contractors to improve um, performance and efficiency. Where do we get those employees from? Largely from Ignico, even though we were putting them into the partnership. So it's going to make it much more effective going forward to have 100% interest in that, particularly when the future is the underground opportunity, which is continuing to grow, and then the ability to take, take advantage of 40,000 tons of spare daily mill capacity, which is going to involve bringing in other deposits. And so we see that as a great opportunity, a smart transaction. And so when you think about these deals, whether it was us initially getting back in, in 2014, stepping into, as Sean Rusin described it, heavy traffic, because Goldcorp made a hostile bid, and Ignico wasn't afraid to jump into heavy traffic, uh, within five days of us announcing with Yamana the new proposal, Goldcorp decided that they would take a pass. Look at the last transaction. We knew we had a winner with Yamana and Pan Am because we had a transaction that if investors were stepping back, because most investors own all these stocks, investors were stepping back and saying, wait a minute, this proposal from Pan Am and Ignico basically is going to result in my Goldfield shares jumping because the market kind of didn't really like that transaction, whether it was the premium or whether it was the strategy match. Yamana stock was going to go up. Agnico stock was going to go up because we were consolidating. And Pan Americans was going to settle, smaller company, but settle over a short period of time because the logic for Pan American is transformational. They're getting these assets at a price that's very accretive for them. And so if you're a portfolio manager saying, man, I'm winning all across the board here. And so that's why we were comfortable putting that out to the market. Well, those deals are very, very rare and it has been well received. Let's talk a little bit about nation building because it's something that you've talked about over the years and to see you put it into effect. I think particularly in the far north of Canada. I mean, you've long had this sense of a say almost a responsibility that uh, as a company that you're not just, you're providing jobs, you're providing economic opportunity, you're also supporting education yeah. and trying to lift people up. Can you talk about why that's important to Ignico and how it's contributed to your overall strategy and your success? That's a big part of our history. Some of you have heard me talk about it before. I mentioned Paul Penna, who Mervyn knew. And there was a, an individual who, he just had this unique ability to see a need. But everybody sees needs, but then you have to be able to, you know, get off your rear end and help uh, meet that need. When I started as a young accountant in 1985, not only was I doing accounting, I was doing everything else. I was delivering things for Paul. And here's an example. In a meeting, Paul gets a phone call and he says, Sean, do me a favor. Here's the keys to my car. You know where I park. Go, go into the trunk. There's a winter jacket, there's a bag of food, and here's 20 bucks. You're going to go to the northeast corner of Richmond and Victoria. There's a gentleman on the grate, the donut shop just called, his name's John. Can you give him the money and the coat and the food? So not only did he know the name 
so of the street people. He knew their jacket size. And so that's our history. So when we go into a place like Nunavut and we see young children who are at the same level and should have the same opportunity as young children in other parts of Canada, but they don't, it's our responsibility to help. We can't do it all, as we say to the government. We can't do it all. We need help. But that's where we come from. And in order to do that, we have to run a profitable business. Like these things go hand in hand. But they're also connected, and that's the mission statement, where not only do we, we feel it's our job to provide above-average returns to our shareholders, it's also our job to make it a great place to work for our employees, but it's also our job to make a big contribution in the communities. And that started in Quebec, started in Jutel, it started in Cobalt in the late 50s when we sort of consolidated those businesses in Cobalt, and now it's carried forward. And so when we look at whether we're a success or not, we don't just measure the share price, which is clearly done well. We don't just measure the size of the business. If we don't get the other two things right with our responsibility to our employees and the communities, then we haven't won. And so when we look at our history, which is going into our 66th year, we can say we won in all those areas. Now, to win with our employees and to win with our communities actually helps the share price. They're all connected. And so that's why we've been patient, we've been disciplined, because we don't want to break that up. And it's also about resiliency. And I've seen it many times, because I've been around for a while. And I can name a laundry list of companies that aren't here anymore, that disappeared for whatever reason. And some disappeared because stuff happens in mining. Sometimes you screw up, we've screwed up many times. Sometimes it's just nature. Sometimes nature goes against you. The important thing is when you mess up, or something goes wrong, is if you've treated your shareholders properly, if you've built that trust and you've built that respect, if you've treated your employees properly, if you've treated your communities properly, they give you the space to dig yourself out of the jam. And we've been able to have that space many times because we've made mistakes, but we've been had the luxury of being able to dig ourselves out which has created the resiliency. Because everybody, everybody here knows how tough this business is. You're dealing with nature. Nature's going to throw you a curveball. Well, it comes back to trust as well, right? Yeah. You've talked about fostering trust, and when communities and your employees trust you, they give you more leeway when things go wrong. This has been consistent over the years that I've known you. This is not something new. You've said this consistently. Deliver above average returns, thinking about it in terms of a per share basis, employees, community. Do you ever worry that now that Agnico is going to a whole other level of size and scale, that those core values could get lost? We don't worry, but we have to be mindful. And, and part of that is manageability, being close to the business. So even though, you know, we're three plus million ounces, it's still only four countries. You know, there are some of our peers who will, you know, proudly say, look, we've got assets in 18 countries. Okay, that's good, but that's not easy. And so not to say that what we have is easy, but I would say it's easier uh, because it's manageable. We can get our arms wrapped around that business and control it. But it's interesting about culture because you always worry. There's 17,000 employees now. So back in 1985, there was only five of us in the head office. And so it has grown. Um, and so do we actually spend a lot of time thinking about culture? Not really. But we spend a lot of time thinking about communication, because this is all about communication. Uh, particularly when things aren't going properly or well, whether it's the shareholders, you can't hide. 
Uh, you got to be open. You got to be transparent. So here we are in Canada. You listed off all those mines. We're non-union, non-union for years. We do our annual sort of salary and benefit negotiations for all those Canadian mines in a week. All of them get done in a week. We're dealing with a collaboration committee, representatives of the employees. But if you have a safe mine, if you've treated your employees fairly over time, then those discussions are pretty simple because we could be dealing with a third generation from a family that's worked there for all that time. And so when we had gold went down $400 in 2013, we're going, whoa, boy, we've got to sort of rejig some of the business here. So here's how it works and why it works. When we approached our employees, and the biggest base was in Canada, and we said, look, it's a bit of a, a, bit of a jam here. Like gold's gone down $400. And we've been able to build a company over all these years where we haven't had these massive layoffs. And we said, look, we don't want it to really impact headcount. So we're going to have to get some tweaks to the stock option plan and, and, and tweaks to the employee share purchase plan and tweaks to this and tweaks to that. And it was about $40 million. It wasn't like small. And you know what the response was? You guys have been so good to us for so long. It's time for us to give a little bit back. That's the way it's supposed to work. No guarantee. But if you're able to sort of be consistent in how you approach things, you tend to get that space to sort of figure out how you manage and deal with challenges in the business. Let's talk a little bit about succession. We've talked about Paul Penna, yep. a legendary company builder and CEO. I got news for you. You're going to go down as a legend as well. 24 years as a CEO building up that company and an unbelievable job. I mean, Amar Al-Jundi, I almost feel sorry for him. So let's talk about Amar because he is he's interesting. He kind of came into Agnico originally yep. back over 10 years ago, went to Barrick, came back. My first question for you is, was there a moment when you thought this could be the guy? Well, he first came in as CFO. So we were looking for a CFO. Dave Garofalo left and took CEO jobs. And so we didn't even use a headhunter because the name kept coming up. You know, you got to talk to this guy. He's a good guy. He's a decent guy, but he's a smart guy. And so we talked to him and our chairman at the time, Jim Nasso, good guy, we're sitting there at lunch and he says, Amar, are you nervous? And Jim's like five foot seven Italian in his 70s at the time, you know, lifts weights. And Amar's a fairly big guy. Amar says, no, I'm not nervous. You should be. And he's just grilling him. He's just grilling him. And so he decided to join. And it cost me, though, I had to send two dozen Agnico golf balls to Barrett because I felt bad for the guys at Barrett because we were stealing a guy. But Amar went back because Jamie Sikulski, one of his best friends, became CEO at Barrick, And Amar went back to be CFO at Barrick. But then we stole him back again. I think I had to give another couple of dozen golf balls and a golf shirt or something. It costs a bit more. But anyways, we knew he was a hard, he's a hard worker, smart guy, cultural fit. And so we could see that. And it was our job to give him a bit more exposure, to, to give him more responsibility in the operating area, which we did. He's a financial guy. He's an engineer by uh, training as well. And so he's a high quality guy. We're happy to have him. We've talked about it now about scale and about how you've done it the right way. But a lot of times in the past, you've discussed, and I think we've discussed about what leads sometimes companies to make overly costly acquisitions is the chase of how do they get the reserve ounces? How do they replace what they're mining when you're at such a high scale? How do you anticipate a Nico doing this? It's trickier to replace ounces when you have this many ounces to replace. Yeah. 
a lot of that comes from exploration. So that's one thing we didn't talk about. We've had a lot of success here over the years because we've made geological bets. So that team, that early team would go around, whether it was Finland, that was a small deposit, 1.4 million ounces. It's probably going to mine out at 7, 8, or 9 million. So they make a geological call. So we still see tremendous exploration potential and upside, particularly in Ontario and Quebec with those foundational assets, detour, and Canadian Malartic, as we said, big step outs, big geology. In Nunavut, we see Hope Bay, again, massive greenstone belt. Hasn't had a lot of work on it because the prior ownership was sort of mixed up. It was not mixed up. It, they just didn't have it for a long enough period of time to stay focused on the upside and the geology. And so we have the patience. What we were always focused in, bringing something in that was likely a single asset that had two hot of a spotlight on it and everything that goes wrong is under that spotlight and it just can't get market traction. What we've tried to do is identify those things. We can bring them in, sort of put them off to the side, do the proper work on them and then bring them out when they're ready to come out. And that's the way we see it. So we're going to add ounces uh, through exploration. You're going to see Detour continue to grow. Canadian Malartic continue to grow. Uh, Finland's a big asset. It'll grow. Meliodine will continue to grow. So there's still some real anchor Lots deposits of mine life there. left. And we should say $300 million I have in my notes to spend on exploration this year. Yeah. So a significant investment. Quickly, Hope Bay, do you have an update? When do you? Is there a timeline for when you think it might come back into production? No, it's still early, but we're focused now on Doris and Madrid. We continue to get some really good drill holes there. As I won't say the name, but one sort of really famous mining person called us up after that deal and said, you know what, you've done a lot of good things at Ignico. In 10 years from now, that'll be the best one you've done. We'll see. Thank you once again for joining me. Apologize for the voice here, just getting over the flu which uh, is pretty vicious this year, so you might want to get your flu shot as we ease into December after a crazy year. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends. Until next week, take care. Take care.